Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. Red teaming is a concept that can trace its origins to the year 1234, when Pope Gregory IX created the position of devil's advocate to vet papal canonizations. In more modern times, the process has been increasingly used by militaries, the foreign policy bureaucracies, and even the private sector to question assumptions and challenge groupthink. My guest today, Micah Zenko, is a Council on Foreign Relations fellow who has written what is arguably the first and definitely most comprehensive examination of red teaming, its history, and its modern applications. It's called Red Team, How to Succeed by Thinking Like the Enemy, and I think it's a supremely interesting investigation of a little-studied aspect of national security and foreign policy making, and I think you will love the conversation we have about the book and more broadly about the value of questioning assumptions. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. If you are a return listener, Listener, thanks for returning and listening. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our archives. You can also get in touch with me. Uh, you can hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg, where you can send me suggestions of people to interview or topics I should cover. And now here is my conversation with Micah Zenko. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Reading the introduction, I, I thought about that scene in World War Z, where the protagonist, Brad Pitt, goes to the Israeli and asks him, why did you think to build a wall to prevent these zombies from coming? And then I see, just now, as we were messing with the phone lines, I flip open, and you yourself cite that, cite that very scene in the movie. It's actually it's a it's part of a, a it's like a in in the Talmud there's a tradition that is sort of I would say misrepresented that if there's ten people agree to something the eleventh person is required um, to be different but that's uh, one there's no such thing within the Mossad or Israeli defense community at all um, <clears throat> there's no there's no equivalent to this World War Z uh, uh, concept and and I sort of fight against the idea that. Um, uh, that you can simply tell somebody to think differently or to become a dissenter. Uh, one of the one of the themes of the book, well, the, I'd say the driving theme of the book is you can't grade your own homework. We know from uh, a lot of historical experience that just as individuals are the poorest judges of themselves, and in fact, individuals who are the worst performers have the greatest disparity between how they perform in pop quizzes, for example, and how they think they perform. Uh, those of us who are the least uh, competent, uh, proficient, are the least likely to see flaws, blind spots, question assumptions, and really understand adversarial motivations. So the notion that you can simply turn to somebody you work with every day and say, I want you to think differently today, or I want you to be the dissenter, 
it's just not how things work because they've already adopted the institutional pathologies, the, com the command climate, the culture, the mores. Um, it is very hard for somebody to suddenly challenge what is conventionalism among the people they work with every day. And this is why it's a sort of, uh, it's a sort of romantic notion, but it's actually not applied uh, by the Israeli uh, intelligence community at all. Um, so, so this idea, though, that, um, you, you know, you push against a grade, you can't grade your, your own homework. The argument you're making, though, is that it can be something that's trained, that's ingrained into bureaucracies itself, uh, the, the idea of, of red teaming and questioning assumptions. Right. And I mean, I always say that red teaming is really about the way that institutions can see the world in a different way. That first requires having the humility to recognize that you can't know everything, um, that if you're the leader of an institution in any competitive environment, whether it's the military, the intelligence world, uh, business sector, um, you are not going to be able to know everything. You can't see all the blind spots, and you cannot assume, as many business leaders often think, that if something's going wrong, I'll be told. Because, in fact, we know from lots of research that people do not, quote, voice up dissenting viewpoints. They actually um, recognize that it, one can be harmful to their career, or more than likely, it's pointless. And that's why most people simply do not challenge uh, and do not act as dissenters in, in any sort of organization. Um, so once you recognize that, uh, you can start to understand that a red team might be willing to help you see the world a different way, to, uh, to challenge your plans and processes, to help you think through strategic decisions. Um, for example, pharmaceutical companies do a lot of red teaming when they have a drug that's going to go off patent because they have to think about how the market's going to respond, how their uh, competitors are going to respond, um, how regulators might respond, similar when they have a new drug coming out that are, it's a highly competitive environment. Uh, the military does a lot of red teaming because they, we know that people involved in uh, uh, sort of developing and implementing campaign plans do not challenge and question it. Mm -hmm. uh, to be a dissenter is to put the mission at risk to potentially harm unit cohesion. So. This is why the military have developed red teams. So once you know you recognize that, and then you empower red team, um, and then you hopefully you know follow a series of best practices that help them be successful. Can you um, identify some examples in which the failure to what you call voice up or dissent has had some sort of profound foreign policy implication for the U.S.? Uh, well, I mean, it, it sort of happens all the time. The the the, the reason there is red teaming in the military today basically stems from the experiences in the Iraq War. And the people at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, it's called the UFMCS, the University of Foreign and Military Cultural Studies. They, it's, also, it's, it's also known as Red Team University. They were primarily the ground component uh, land uh, planners for 2003 Iraq War. And in 2002-2003, they, as one of the, the, the person who's now the director at UFMCS, retired Army Colonel Steve Rodkoff, told me, he, he said, we were on mission lock. Our whole job was to go down and take down Saddam Hussein, and we never thought anything else. We never, people recognized problems with this. They talked to exiled Iraqis who warned them, you're going to have an insurgency on your hands any day, um, but they never told that to their bosses, and when they tried, they realized they were smacked down. Um, nobody ever questioned, for example, what happens if the Iraqi army disintegrates. I mean, the whole point of the post-war transition planning was that, that the Iraq army would take the place as the stabilization force when Saddam Hussein fell. Nobody ever thought they would be dismantled. And so when the Coalition Provisional Authority came in and did it, everybody was surprised. There was literally no plan for it. 
Um, and so after that, the, the, the people who lived that experience, and they're, they're literally, they lived with it every day, they then went to Fort Leavenworth and got some support from the Army, and they formed it. So if people had voiced up and they had heard the dissenting opinions that Iraq was going to be more challenging, require more resources, and take longer than people uh, initially thought in the 2002 stage of planning, there might have been some change uh, among senior policymakers for how they approached it. I guess, though, doesn't that sort of assume that senior policymakers would be willing to listen to these dissenting opinions? I mean, are there cases where people have voiced up but have been sort of smacked down? Uh, well, I, I would say that does happen at times. Um, the, the, more, the more likely thing is they don't voice up, though. Uh, uh, and in fact, when you talk to senior leaders, they primarily, they, one, of the, one of the units I really focus on in the book is called the CIA's Red Cell. The Red Cell was formed shortly after 9-11, literally two days after 9-11. And it's about a dozen analysts who do alternative analysis, who do Team B, who do what-if contrarian sort of scenarios. And these are, they don't go through the normal um, CIA vetting process, so it goes, basically one person signs off at, at the senior level, and they look different than other products, so people know it's a red cell product. And people love them because they, uh, they, are, they really do challenge conventional wisdom. They see the world in a different way. And, see, and so I interviewed you know, everybody from CIA directors to the Department of Defense to the National Security Advisor, uh, Steve Hadley, and even people in the current Obama administration, and they just love these. So they like to be challenged. Now, whether something, you know, whether intelligence is never determinative, um, it's one of the inputs that a senior leader will take into account when they make a, a big decision. Um, but they usually like to have more voices and more opinions than normal. Um, so it's something that needs to be done. The problem is, for the most part, uh, when it comes down to uh, like really important big decisions, a one-off big one-time event decision, People uh, become attuned to what the senior leader wants, whether this is a president, a, a military leader, and that impression quickly becomes signaled down the chain of command, and people then adopt that preference, and then they find confirming evidence to support that preference, and then they uh, internalize it themselves. It's very hard to be the dissenter, the lone dissenter in a large group. Um, so, so people do try to do this, but if you want to have a long career in the military, in government, in the intelligence world, or in the business, uh, you know, if you want to make it to the C-suite in the business world, uh, you don't, uh, as this one Marine Lieutenant Colonel told me in the book, you basically get promoted for reading the mind of your boss and acting upon it. Nobody ever gets, uh, uh, nobody ever gets promoted because they, they challenge and dissent. And the other thing is nobody ever uh, gets fired for being quiet. Right, so there's no penalty for keeping your, your mouth shut, whereas people perceive that there can be penalties for speaking up. Are there other um, governments around the world that um, don't have these kind of bureaucratic incentives as skewed towards um, complacency or, or compliance uh, as uh, the the scenario you just described? Like, are other governments doing it a, a little better? Like, have they embedded in their bureaucracy, in their foreign policy bureaucracy? Um, principles of, of red teaming? Well, it would be, that would really, that would, that would be a great second book to really look at. There you go. I've, I've done it. I, mean, <laughs> I, I did find some other examples, like the, uh, as a result of the Yom Kippur War, there is a, uh, a contrarian viewpoint in the military intelligence part of the IDF that is, in, that is by design required to come to the contrary opinion. 
um, build the wall uh, to protect against zombies. Something, something like that, but it tends to be more like uh, there's some ongoing strategy or plan, and they just come to the opposite conclusion that it's effective. Mm-hmm. And and, they, and these are briefed to the levels of parliament and directly in the prime minister's office. It's apparently like an extremely stressful job um, that that doesn't last particularly. You don't last particularly long in it. There's also a red team in the Ministry of Defense in the UK, and I went and I visited them. They are about 20, or I'm sorry, about 40, 50 miles uh, west of London in Swindon. And they're a think tank that essentially does one-off red teams on behalf of the Ministry of Defense and other parts of the U.K. government. Super smart. Um, they don't, you know, there's no penalty for them being critical. Uh, they really don't care. I mean, they can just sort of say anything they want. They take assignments when they believe they can have an impact, and they say no when they believe they can't. Um, so those were the, the sort of two outside the United States examples I found. I know other militaries do types of red teaming, but I, I don't think it's on the institutional mm-hmm. level that the United States Army and Marine Corps in particular does. Oh, well, one interesting example from, from your book seems to be the New York Police Department, right? Which, um, and, and, and you can tell the story, but, but what happened after? How did the, the Mumbai attacks, right? They, they, you tell this, this pretty interesting story about how the police commissioner sort of immediately after the Mumbai attacks commissioned a, a training exercise. Sure. I mean, there are three types of red teaming I go into the book. One is alternative analysis. The second are vulnerability probes. And the third are simulations. And one of the most successful simulation examples I found is the NYPD commissioner tabletop exercises. These are done at one police plaza with all of the uh, key uh, senior leaders from the NYPD and through the NYC uh, city government in general, as long as some FBI participation and then other uh, people who, who weigh in. For example, before the Pope paid his visit to New York, there were people from the Vatican and the local archdiocese who came in and saw uh, all of these contingency scenarios. And what they do is somebody in the Counterterrorism Bureau writes a script that has a series of fictional uh, surprises that the uh, commanders have to respond to. And these are plausible scenarios, but they're also... Um, uh, but, they're, but they're sort of shocking, and there's a series of limitations to what the capabilities they have. So, for example, before the Pope came, um, they told everybody, as part of the fictional scenarios, what happens if a hurricane arrives? And now all of a sudden, actually what happens when a hurricane comes to the New York coastline, NYPD moves all of its boats up the Hudson River, and it puts all of its aircraft to uh, airports farther inland in New Jersey. So now you don't have maritime or aviation. So now how do you respond to these scenarios? And the, the one that had the biggest impact was in 2008, after the terror attacks in Mumbai, you had multiple teams going throughout the city, uh, shooting, shooting up a Jewish community center, shooting up hotels, shooting up uh, restaurants where Westerners uh, tended to visit. People recognized that Mumbai actually resembles Manhattan in many ways. It's a peninsula. They came into the water. They dispersed on foot and in cabs. And they sort of thought, well, if you had multiple independent teams taking hostages and engaging in sustained shootouts, what could we do? And the, what they found out in the simulations, they found out two critical things, was that actually the NYPD did not, did not have enough of people trained in heavy machine guns and long guns to fight them. Uh, over time, they would just run out of people. And they demonstrated this in terms of the simulation. They had the local commander, the two-star uh, person involved in Manhattan, to go to the uh, and, and what's called ESE, the Emergency Support Unit, they went and they responded to a fictional scenario hostage-taking in midtown Manhattan hotels. And after eight or ten hours, 
they have to be replaced with new people. And then they found out they didn't have enough people to replace more than once. Mumbai went on for several days. And so as a response to that, they did two things. One is they trained more people in long guns. They put more deposits of long guns throughout the city so they could be uh, 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 they could get to them quickly if there was a similar multiple-team proficient hostage-taking scenario. And the third thing is they realized they didn't have good blueprints of all of the hotels, of all of the of airports, of all the places these were likely to happen. And so the, the first responders who would have to counterattack these uh, uh, multiple terrorist groups would have to, they, now they know better what the situation looks mm-hmm. like. And the point is that it's only because of the simulation that they learned these things, that they learned about their shortcomings. On their own, they would not have um, found this out. And the one thing red teaming sort of always does is it elicits a new understanding about a problem or about your internal processes that on your own you would not find. Um, and so I've actually been able to go and sit in on a couple of these uh, before the New York City marathons. And, uh, and, the, and they're really remarkable um, they're really sort of remarkable events where going through fictional scenarios, people collectively find out about what it is they haven't thought about seriously and what they need to do to improve it. So you were just at one because the New York City Marathon was just, you know, a few days ago uh, after recording this. I was there about eight days ago and it was a, and I had gone to the one the year before as well. And so, uh, you know, for example, one of the things that have happened in both those scenarios is say a drone shows up drone shows up at the starting line over the Verrazano Narrows, or say a drone shows up near the finish line and it looks like it's carrying something, um, and maybe it's an explosive, what do you do? Or one of the other scenarios they've had... What, what was the result? What, what, did they, what did they decide what to do about the drone at the finish line that was carrying something? Uh, I can't... I mean, I, I, I sort of went to this one without, going, without getting permission of how to talk ah, about it. But okay. you can, what it did was it, what it, what it did was it forced them to think about something that they sort of have thought about a little bit, but they realize they aren't adequately prepared. Uh, drones are actually a huge problem for a lot of uh, municipal uh, law enforcement, and for NYPD, it's a growing, growing problem. And so as, as a result of it, people realize, one, they needed better ways to, to deal with those capabilities, to neutralize at times, at other times to sort of immobilize. Um, and I think that's something they're working on. But one of the other scenarios they looked at in both years was, Say around mile 16, which is when people start running north up First Avenue, uh, a huge cluster of runners starts getting busy and fainting and throwing up. Now, was that because they're at the point of coming up, you know, coming back in Manhattan where they're exhausted and a lot of people apparently do get busy there? Or was the water tainted? And if the water was tainted, where did they start drinking? Um, and then so one of the things they learned is that it's actually really hard to taint the water because of the, the, some precautions that the New York Roadrunners put in place. Um, but then there's backup plans if the water is tainted. Um, and then if they recognize there's a really bad event, there's actually backup backup plans to divert the course at any point, uh, to stop the race at any point, and to uh, set up alternative finish lines, both for the elite runners and for everybody else. Hmm. And it was fascinating to watch these NYPD commanders and the bomb squad and the detective squad and everyone else sort of learn about how the New York Roadrunners prepare for this. And without the simulation, they would never have known. Um, you also uh, discuss in your book um, 
you know, red teaming as it as it um, relates to big policy questions. I mean, you, you cite early in your book um, the, the Team B exercise that was famous for assessing Soviet military uh, capabilities and, and intentions. Um, I wanted to, to ask, I mean, you've done a lot of uh, actual reporting uh, around this, um, and, and your book is, is sort of a good piece of reporting around an issue that doesn't get a lot of uh, attention, um, which is this kind of questioning of, of assumptions and red teaming. Um, but on on Syria, on like a big policy question towards Syria and, you know, the quagmire that is Syria, what sort of exercises is either the U.S. military or U.S. policymakers uh, undertaking right now to you know, try to you know, deduce the, the best policy going forward and question, you know, fundamental assumptions about um, the, the, the situation in Syria? Well, Syria is a very interesting situation. I've actually spoken at the State Department um, um, in, in a couple different capacities to people who are interested in applying red teaming to the Syria problem. Um, the truth of the matter is that I know from the military side of things that not a single, I would say, individual above the colonel level believes the U.S. strategy will succeed. Nobody believes it. And actually, when President Obama announced it on September 10, 2014, Everybody was sort of uh, perplexed because they looked at the commitment, the political commitment, the resource commitment, the coalition commitment, and then they looked at the problem of ISIS and its sort of growing ideological influence and its growing strength and its proficiency, and everyone said, well, this will never work. Like the articulated end state, which is to uh, degrade and, quote, ultimately destroy ISIL, nobody believes that will happen. Now, the question is, why are senior leaders voicing that up and making that dissenting opinion known? Um, and I literally found out that they aren't. Uh, um, quietly, they'll tell you they think it's not going to work, nothing's going to happen, but they won't say it. Um, so there's not much you can do about it once people have recognized this is the decision of the White House and the president is commander-in-chief, and my job now is to salute and execute on the campaign plan as best as possible. Um, so that's a situation where it's almost hard, where red teaming could be impactful, but people have to be willing to do it uh, and put their, uh, or at least perceivedly put their professions at risk. And I don't know if that's happening or not. I, I know there are people who do red team-like activities for Central Command, which is the regional mil U.S. military command for uh, Iraq and Syria uh, and the greater Middle East. Um, but whether or not they're being listened to or heard, it's really hard to know. And as you know, there was the reporting both in the New York Times and the Daily Beast about six, seven weeks ago, which is now being worked through uh, Pentagon Inspector General um, is doing an investigation of this, that there were dissenting viewpoints of either defense intelligence analyst agents or, um, uh, or CENTCOM uh, uh, intelligence agents who didn't believe the plan was working and they, didn't, and they thought that their uh, dissenting opinions were being watered down in final intelligence products. So we'll see what becomes of that. But this is a clear situation where um, red teaming might be purposeless if the White House in particular and the Secretary of Defense, the, the two people who could actually do something about it, uh, just don't want to see the problem differently. They don't want their, their assumptions challenged because they simply don't politically want to make any greater commitment or to change the strategy. My and, and I might get the history of this wrong, but um, my understanding is that there is a process, at least in the State Department, for foreign service officers to channel dissent uh, up the chain of command. I think it was created, you know, in in uh, sort of inspired by the Vietnam era. Maybe even Richard Holbrook's experience in the Vietnam era, serving as a foreign service officer in Vietnam. 
um, that somehow made its way uh, to the the State Department bureaucracy. And there are some kind of more famous examples of this happening in Afghanistan in the uh, mid-2000s where people that were involved in the provincial reconstruction teams realized that what they're doing was unsuccessful. Uh, and so, you know, kind of wrote these memos that got fed up the chain of command. Um, do, do, does that, do those processes still exist? And I mean, are they at all impactful? Well, so processes similar to this exist everywhere. Like in, in the corporate world, there's a complaint box. There's hotlines. You can go to HR. You can go to the, an ombudsman. You can go to the inspector general. You can probably, there's probably a senior mentor. Uh, who you can bring your dissenting viewpoint. And then there's formal channels. All of these sort of tactical responses to channeling dissent um, sort of uh, drive home the point that people are really not interested in dissenting viewpoints, right? And so these do exist everywhere, but when single individuals who see problems then write memos, um, it ultimately has to go through in the military side of things. So the person running the plan is the three shop, which is the staff section for operations, and the, the more junior person who sends it to the three person, who in the case of Afghanistan would be, uh, I believe, a two-star general, you know, they're not going to they're not going to really listen to that. And I have case I have many examples in the book, including one very specific red team engagement, when a uh, Marine colonel and two majors from the U.S. Army did this red team engagement in Afghanistan, and uh, they had complete access to all the information. They could travel where they wanted. And they said the U.S.-Afghan partnering, sort of uh, the train and equip capacity, the train and equip uh, policy wasn't working. And and this Marine colonel, who I know quite well, went in front of General Stanley McChrystal, the commander for all Afghan forces, and said, this isn't working at all. And McChrystal just didn't want to hear it. And he said, it sounds like you're telling me how to run my war. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, everyone in that room recognized uh, that it was not acceptable to challenge the commander. And once that command climate is set and it, and it sort of it trickles its way back down to junior officers, nobody speaks up again. Um, so there are individual ways where you can try to have a dissenting viewpoint, um, but for the most part, it, it, that, that is not particularly impactful. Red teams are uh, essentially a way to get around these one-off individual tactical way. It's an institutional uh, uh, series of, of semi-independent people who can challenge assumptions look for blind spots, consider adversarial perspectives, and are empowered by senior leaders. That's one of the best practices. The boss must buy in or nothing else matters. And then they tend to have more of a difference. But if it's one-off dissenting viewpoints, I mean, a bureaucracy can sweep that away quite easy because one of the things I've learned in every institution I've learned, uh, I've studied is dissenters are championed, mavericks are welcomed uh, uh, sort of glowingly, but they're ultimately hunted down and killed because they're putting at risk everybody's performance and jobs and mission. So dissenters are incredibly rare people. Uh, and eventually, as one of, the, one of the people I interviewed for the book, former General David Petraeus, he said, eventually you run out of mavericks. So everybody has one person who isn't afraid to speak up at their job, but it's usually just one person, and people have become inured to that person's dissenting viewpoint. Um, so we're speaking uh, just shortly after the book was published. How has it been received so far in, in the policy community? Well, in the policy community, it's still it's still quite quiet because they don't really know much about red teaming, except for the people who do this. And these are people in places like policy planning at state, in the strategic planning unit of the National Security Council, 
in the five shop, which is the sort of strategies and plans part of the joint staff in the Pentagon. Um, they've, they've had some interest in it, but it's primarily so far the military because everyone in the military knows Red Team, or they know they have some notion of it. And it's been pretty enthusiastic because, you know, and the one thing this book does is, and the reason I wrote it was because nobody had written a comprehensive account of Red Teaming. I looked for many years for such an example. I read every syllabus uh, of where, where Red Teaming was taught. I knew of specific one-off articles of Red Teaming in the cyber world, in the business world, you know, have a devil's advocate in the boardroom. Um, all the examples of, of red teaming and red cell work in uh, military intelligence, but no one had done a comprehensive account. Um, so I think people who know it are kind of happy that there's finally something out there. Um, and so far, you know, the reaction has been pretty positive. Uh, well, Micah, thank you so much. This was great. Uh, I encourage everyone to read your book. All right, that was fun. I did not expect to bring up World War Z, which I thought was generally a lousy movie, but did most definitely show the United Nations in a positive light. I believe the World Health Organization saved the world in that film. I, I, or at least Brad Pitt did. Some combination of the two. Anyway, we'll see you next time. Bye.